Yes, Esther chapter 8, beginning at verse 3, and it's on page 506 in the Church Bible. Esther chapter 8, beginning at verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it a right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month of the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of every people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, riding the royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out 
On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. If you've got a Bible nearby, um, keep that open. We're going to, as we've done, uh, I think every week in the Esther series, it's been too long a passage to read in one go. So we're actually going all the way to the end of uh, chapter 10. So we finished the book off. But let me pray for us as we turn our attention to that. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for this story. Thank you that you've been using it uh, over the past few weeks and we ask that you would continue to speak today, that you would help us by your Spirit to see how we fit in to what's going on here and that you would be helping us to celebrate your great victory in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Happily ever after. That's uh, how we like it, isn't it? That's how we want things to be. That's how we want everything to end. If you just think about your favourite stories. How do those ones end? Or at least your, your favourite stories from when you were a child and weren't all sophisticated and started liking depressing books and things like that. The real ones we really like are happy endings, aren't they? Uh, sometimes if I want to watch a film, uh, Lib will ask me, is it sad? Is it sad? And what she means by that is, does it end sad? Uh, a bit sad is okay along the way, as long as it ends happily ever after. That, that's okay. And some people criticise uh, happily ever after as being unrealistic. But if we've read our Bibles properly, then we'll know. Actually, no, it's the most realistic ending of all, because that is how the world is going to end. That is how the lives of all God's people eventually will end, happily ever after. And the book of Esther is just the same, as we'll see. But it doesn't start happily. It starts with the lingering threat. The lingering threat. See, the book could have got away with ending last week. It could have got away with ending in chapter 8, verse 2, with Esther has finally, she's gone to see the king and she survived. Mordecai has avoided death. The evil villain Haman has got his comeuppance. And you think, well, that's brilliant, isn't it? Why can't we just stop there? Uh, and that's because it's not the ending. It's not over by a long shot. There's still this lingering threat of the impending execution of all Jews across the empire. That was what Haman's law said, that young and old men, women, children are going to be destroyed, killed and annihilated on this particular day. So Haman's gone, Haman's dead, but his edict lives on. It's almost like the, the driver isn't in the car anymore, but the handbrake's off and it's rolling down the hill towards us. Who's going to stop this thing now? And so Esther steps up to try to do just that. So have a look in chapter 8, verse 3. As Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, 
She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. She's becoming emotional for the first time in the story. Previously, she's been sort of putting herself together. There's been lots of following the protocol and things like that. But now it's begging. She says, you've got to cancel the edict. You need to write and overrule it. Just scrub it out. You've got to do it. She's absolutely desperate. Because these are her people. Have a look in verse 6. She says, how can I bear to see the destruction of my family? How can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? That's very different to what she was saying a few weeks ago, isn't it? So uh, in the first week, we saw she had two names. She was Esther and Hadassah. And she's torn between these identities of the worldly Persian life, where she can be queen and she can enjoy all of that, or the risky life of being one of God's people. And we can see by now she's made her choice, hasn't she? As God's people, she now says, these are my people. And that's a sign of God at work in our lives, isn't it? That, that church stops being a place they do things and becomes my family. The lost out there facing judgment, they are people we love, people we plead for. And Esther and Mordecai, they, they're in now in positions of power, positions of security, but they don't rest on that. They don't just sort of go, well, I'm all right. Everyone else can, well, they can fend for themselves. No, they, they use their newfound influence for the good of their people. And we see here again another picture of Jesus, moved by our desperate plight. He doesn't just rest in his heavenly palace and say, well, I'm okay. They can sort themselves out. No, he, he identifies with us. He comes to his suffering, his sinful people. He uses his power to save us. In effect, he says, how can I bear to see my people perish? How can I live while they die? And so Esther, she comes forward and, and asks for Haman's edict to be revoked that's what she wants to happen. She wants it to be overruled and revoked. But it isn't quite as easy as that. Have a look in verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they've impaled him on the pole he set up. Now, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Now, it sounds on the surface like good news, and it will prove to be good news, but, but it's also an admission of defeat, isn't it? He is saying, look, I've given you lots of stuff already. I've given your cousin a really great job. I've killed your enemy. But I can't revoke the edict. Nothing written by the king and sealed with his ring can be revoked. You could try writing another edict, I suppose, but that's all I can offer you. Over and again, he's been saying, hasn't he, I will grant your wish, I will grant your wish, but when it comes to the crunch, he can't. This book of Esther, one of its jobs, I think, is to take us behind the scenes of the most powerful people in the world to show them up that they're actually very weak. 
All through the book, our translation uh, calls him Xerxes, which means ruling over heroes. But in the original language, it's calling him Ahasuerus, which in Hebrew sounds like headache. So this whole way through the book, it's all hail King Headache. This great Xerxes the Great, he can't actually stop the lingering. He's got a suggestion for how we might be able to do it, but anything I've said can't be overruled. Now that would be a really bad ending, wouldn't it, to say, so after all this, can you cancel the edict? No. And behold, the 13th of Adar came, all the Jews were destroyed, the end. End of Esther, end of the Bible, the end. That is where everything is heading, unless something very drastic happens, which it does. We have the hopeful solution. The hopeful solution. So Xerxes has said, you can write a new law, you can't unwrite the old one. And so Esther and Mordecai decide to give that a go. They write this second edict. They write a sequel that is better than the original. And, and it's worded very similarly to the first one. And it's sealed with the king's ring, written by the king's right-hand man, different person at the minute, but sent out to 127 provinces, written in all their languages. It's just the same as the first one in its style. But in its content, it's absolutely the opposite. So Haman's first edict called for all the Jews everywhere to be killed. Whereas this new edict calls for all the Jews to defend themselves. Without this edict, self-defense was illegal. I'm sorry, this is the day you're supposed to die. There's nothing you can do about it. So even if they had somehow managed to survive the day, they would be dealt with the next day. Whereas now, they're specifically told they're free to fight back. Let's read what the edict actually says, verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. It says, The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. You see, it's very carefully worded. This is not carte blanche to go around murdering people. This is simply allowing them to deal with people who attack them first. In a sense, it's the same as UK law. Uh, my vast legal knowledge tells me that Beckford versus the Queen, 1988. A defendant is entitled to use reasonable force to protect himself, others for whom he is responsible, and his property. That's basically what this edict is allowing them to do. And that, that is the hopeful solution. This is the, the way that they're going to level the playing field and put them in with a fighting chance. So this edict gets written up, sent out to everybody by couriers, and the, the horses race out of there, not just kind of kicking up dust behind them, but everywhere they go, they're leaving joy behind them wherever they go. So the first edict, if you remember, when that went out, it set this sort of tidal wave of grief everywhere it went. Whereas this is more like a Mexican wave, if you like. Everybody receives the news and they just rejoice. Have a look at verse 16 and 17. It says, For the Jews it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting, and celebrating. 
It is a really, really good day. Imagine just for a moment that you are uh, a Jew in some far-flung corner of the empire. You're, you're over in Pakistan or something like that. And the FedEx man gets off his horse and delivers this message to you. How do you feel at that point? Well, suddenly it's not hopeless, is it? There's still a threat that's lingering over you, but now there's hope because somehow... I've got a friend in high places. Somehow there is somebody fighting my corner. And this hopeful solution is very much like the gospel in that sense. We hear news that it is not hopeless, that there is one right, the right hand of the throne in heaven speaking up for me, fighting my corner. And it brings us joy. Karen Jobes, let me quote her one last time. She says, God, king of the universe, cannot simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. Instead, he issues a counter decree of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the threat of judgment still lingers, but now we've got hope of salvation. For everybody who trusts in Jesus, that decisive day of our doom that is coming is actually going to be our day of deliverance. And that changes absolutely everything, doesn't it? And wherever that good news goes, people celebrate. We should anyway, shouldn't we? The full rescue, it hasn't happened yet, but in advance, we're told, they have a joyous celebration, verse 15. And so can we as well, because it is as good as done. How we view the future, that impacts how we feel right now, doesn't it? And this is our future. This is the solution that should bring us hope, that the tide is turning, that in Jesus we have a friend in high places who is fighting our corner. The tide is turning. And it's interesting, it's not just God's people who can see it. See what happens at the end of verse 17. The, the very last verse of chapter 8. Many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. And if you can't beat them, join them. And they've come to realize that we can't beat them. Now this is quite amazing because there's no obvious benefit in a sense. Uh, the, the two edicts leave us with two different targets. You're going to be got if you are a Jew or if you are a person who attacks Jews. You could just go for option C, not attack anybody, and you're safe. But no, these are people who can see the tide is turning. And so despite the danger, they choose to become Jews. It's quite ironic, isn't it? The whole book of, of Esther began with Jews acting like Gentiles. And it ends with Gentiles becoming Jews. Times have very much changed. Now we, we might look at this uh, and think, well, they, they, they converted out of fear. Is that really the, the best motive? And maybe some of them were in it for the wrong reasons, I don't know. But the Bible isn't frightened of frightening people into the kingdom. Judgment Day is going to be awful. We ought to be afraid of it. We ought to be looking for a way out. Haman's wife had warned him, hadn't she? You are on a path, you, your downfall is inevitable but he just kept going 
And lots of people do the same thing. They, they live like that, saying, no, I, I, I'm going to ignore the inevitable. I'm going to just keep plowing on, rejecting God. They sort of, they're a bit like King Xerxes in that sense. This is the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once I have made up my mind, it cannot be revoked. Let's not be that person, that stubborn, irrevocable. Be instead like these people who switch sides, who see what is coming, who drop their opposition to God, who join his people despite the risks and the dangers. They join the people who are full of hope because far from being exterminated, isn't it amazing? God's people are growing. There are more and more people coming to join them. This 13th of Adar is closer than ever, but they're rejoicing. How do you account for that? The day itself finally comes. It was going to be a slaughter. Now it's set up to be a battle. What is going to happen? What will be the outcome? Well, we see in this bit, in chapter 9, the surprising victory. The surprising victory. Now, I say it's surprising, but if you're going, it's not that surprising, is it? Well, if that's what you're thinking, you're getting it. It ought not to be that surprising. If God is for us, who can be against us? Of course, it's a victory. Uh, But I say it's surprising because I think that's the feel of it here. Chapter 9, verse 1. It really sort of builds up the tension. It says, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Oh, man, it's here. The edict commanded by the king was carried out. Which one? On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now, the tables were turned. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. We're supposed to cheer at that point. Who saw that coming back in chapter 3? Everything was against them. They're a tiny minority, uh, estimated maybe 2% of the population. With the other 98% allowed to do whatever they like to them and attack them. There's no way they can reverse that. But God can reverse the irreversible. And he does. The people did attack them, we're told. But in verse 2, 9 verse 2, no one could stand against them. They had military backup in the end, thanks to Mordecai. And they had hope. This is sort of a climactic scene if they're turning this into a a film. With sort of swords flashing, buckles swashed. Little kids look down from the upstairs windows to see their... Dads and neighbours defend the patio doors from the rampaging enemy, keeping them at bay. We're supposed to be cheering at this. Feel free if the, if the mood takes you. It is a fantastic scene. In verse 7 to 10, all of Haman's sons are among those put to justice. Now, apparently a lot of old rabbis would have taken issue with the formatting in our Bibles. What they liked was to have the names of Haman's sons listed one per line, to help us visualise one on top of the other on a spike. (laughs) Because that's what happened to them. He needs that visual reminder in the text to say, look, they met the same fate as their dad, the one who built this pole for Mordecai. This is the point where Hansel and Gretel kick the witch into the oven. This is the Battle of Hogwarts. This is the moment that the goodies win. The baddies get what's theirs. It was a very good day. A surprising victory. 
But some of us, I suppose, the surprise might be that we're expected to cheer for this. I don't know if anybody's favourite verse is Esther 9 verse 5. It's just my favourite verse in the Bible. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Is that your favourite verse? Pop that on a little poster of a kitten. I think we are supposed to be happy about this. I think for a number of reasons, it isn't as terrible as it seems. First of all, because it was self-defence, as we've already seen. Anyone who was killed in this point was asking for it. They had been warned and they were asking for it. Plus, the death toll isn't actually that high. Chapter 9, verse 16 puts it at 75,000, which, granted, that sounds like a lot. (laughs) But this is out of an empire of 50 million And compared to the around one million Jews who would have died if Haman had won. But I think the big reason this surprising victory is a good thing is that this wasn't a normal war. This was God judging his enemies. Now, I mentioned this uh, a few weeks ago, but back in Exodus 17... The Amalekites started this whole thing by attacking God's people and God promised to blot them out. And at various times through the Bible story, he told his people to do it, to blot them out, but they never did. And King Saul faced the Amalekite king Agag. Again, he refused. He was told by God, don't spare their lives, don't take their plunder. And so what did he do? Well, he took all their best stuff and he let Agag live. And so here in this passage, when Haman, the Agagite, the descendant of Agag, and everyone who's on his side is put to death, this is God's people finally being obedient to that specific command. Not that God goes and tells us to to kill everybody we don't like, but that very specific command, even down to the stuff about not taking the plunder. In a war, everybody stole the plunder. What is the point of winning a war if you don't get to keep their stuff? But we're told here three times in verse 10, verse 15, verse 16, they did not lay hands on the plunder. It must have been very tempting. It would have been legal, but it wouldn't have been right because it wasn't their stuff to take. It wasn't a normal war of just one people group against another people group. This was God against sinners. God judging through them and that has to change how we view it because in a sense we ought to see ourselves as enemies of evil we should oppose evil in all its forms sin has has destroyed our world it's brought with it all kinds of misery and sickness and sadness and suffering what kind of god wouldn't judge that what kind of people would we be if we didn't want him to In a way, we should be more surprised that when we get to the New Testament, we're told not to help God out with this kind of thing anymore. We're told instead to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and turn the other cheek. Why? Has God gone soft? No, he's being patient. We are specifically told not to take vengeance. Not because vengeance is a bad thing, but because vengeance is his job. He will do it without us when he's good and ready. Sometimes I think we can think, oh, well, we don't do this kind of thing anymore. 
Because the Old Testament is, oh, it's barbaric, isn't it? And we're much more sophisticated than that. I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is not a thing of the past. We don't do it because it's a thing of the future. This is a, a foretaste of what is coming on that final day when, to everybody's surprise but us, Jesus wins the victory over evil when every wrong receives justice. When all of God's enemies, not just people, but the effects of sin, illness, war, pain, death, it's all going to be destroyed. Despite what it looks like, a surprising victory is coming. That is a good thing. And the victory is going to be all the sweeter because that is the day we should have died. That should be our destruction day, judgment day, whenever it comes. And we don't know the date. They had a date in their diary. They knew it was coming. They could get themselves ready. We don't know when it will be. But that day should have been the end for all of us. But Jesus faced it for us. His death on the cross means judgment day should hold no more dread for us. For all of us who trust in him, he assures us instead of an undeserved surprising victory and that means we have got so much to celebrate so much to celebrate which is exactly what happens next we get the great celebration the great celebration celebration is the right response to a victory isn't it and so they set up an annual festival have a look chapter 9 verse 20 onwards Mordecai recorded these events. We don't know, maybe that means wrote this book. We're not sure. Uh, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. The story ends where it started, which is with a massive party. We're told to bake a cake, get out the party poppers. The cake should probably be an upside down cake because the stuff that was all squashed down at the bottom is now on top. It's been an enormous reversal. And, and Mordecai didn't really need to obligate them to do this. If we have a look at verse 23, it says, So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. So off their own backs, they were already celebrating. That's just what good news does. You don't win a war and go, Ugh, apparently we've got to have a street party. You just do it, don't you? Just like when somebody gets married, you celebrate. But it wouldn't hurt for somebody to obligate the couple to celebrate it every year. Maybe have a little reminder, don't forget <laughs> what day it is. Let's celebrate this every year. And so every year to this day, Jews still celebrate it. They dress up. They read the story together. They act it out. Whenever Mordecai's name is said, they cheer and clap. Whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they boo and hiss like a panto. They shake rattles. This is a, a grogger. They shake these to blot out his name. Because Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 27, says to blot out his name. Okay, well, every time we say the name Haman, we want to make it so you can't hear it anymore. 
And next week's All Age Service, we are going to do something similar. We're going to act out the whole story because we've had it in lots of different pieces. It's good to put it together with plenty of joyful celebration about how God saves his people. Now, one of the things we won't be copying next week, uh, not even over the lunch afterwards, is how much they drink. Uh, The Talmud says, on Purim, you should become fragrant with wine until you cannot tell the difference between somebody saying, cursed be Haman or blessed be Mordecai. Those don't sound the same. Uh, One joke goes that it's called Purim because that's all you can hear. is people saying, pour him another drink, pour him another drink. Uh, That is not why it's called that, though. We're told how it got its name in verse 24 to 26. Have a look there. It says, For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word poor. That is a strange name in a way, isn't it? The casting of lots was such a tiny detail to name the whole thing after. We might have forgotten about that aspect of it a couple of weeks ago. Shouldn't we call it sort of St. Mordecai's Day or Reversal Fest or something like that? But actually, it is a really good name. It gets right at the heart of what Esther's all about. Because you can't get much more random than casting lots or, or rolling dice or having a lottery. And yet God overrules the randomness of it. It's a bit like calling the festival bingo. It just sort of looks like a random sequence of numbers until suddenly, bingo, God wins. Yet again, even in the name that gets given to the festival, Esther's story is drawing our attention to the unseen God, the God who reigns supreme over every detail. Colin was mentioning sort of what do you name a book of this. I named the series after that famous verse of Esther coming for such a time as this. But in a sense, the the theme verse could have been Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You can pull a straw out at random, but it's not random. The victory is sure because God is sovereign over vast empires, over tiny details. This festival, this celebration of Purim was about confidence in God. So we've got to ask, haven't we, is our confidence in God? As we face big things, as we face loads of tiny, seemingly random things, is our confidence in God. The book finishes with a picture of life after the battle. We get this funny little chapter 10, just three verses long, showing the empire at peace. And the very final verse, chapter 10, verse 3, says this, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. This downtrodden man now ruling 
reigning in peace. All of his people love him for what he's done for them. Again, friends, that is where we're heading, isn't it? An eternity of peace, praising Jesus for saving us, for protecting us. We are going to celebrate this forever. So how do we celebrate it now? I think two very quick final ways and then we'll finish. Firstly, we need to remember the threat. Remember the threat. It's tempting, isn't it, to forget all the bad stuff that happens in the book and just stay with the happy stuff. But have a look at the priorities that, uh, that Mordecai has in chapter 9, verse 30 to 31. It says, Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Fasting and lamentation. See, everybody wants to have a party, but Esther and Mordecai are saying that we also need a time of reflection. Yes, we want to have time of feasting, but we also need fasting. And so at their insistence, before the fun, Purim still includes what's called the fast of Esther, a few days beforehand, recreating not just the parties at the end, but recreating those desperate days of fasting before Esther went in to see the king. We so easily forget the threat, don't we? We forget what might have been. And so we lose any wonder at our salvation. We need to remember deliverance only came to them when they turned back to God in chapter 4. And it's the same with us. We need to remember the threat. We need to remember the judgment, the fate that nearly fell on us. To keep turning from sin. Keep relying on God's mercy. Because without that kind of fast, there is no feast. And just like a fast increases our appetite, the more we think about what may have happened to us, what nearly got us, the more we're going to appreciate our salvation. The more we're going to be able to do the last thing, which is to remember the victory. To remember the victory. Don't stay fasting forever. Don't let the battle get you down. We're supposed to lift each other's eyes up to that final day, the day when we were doomed, but God raised somebody up to plead our case. The war is going to be over, and we are going to still be standing. And so we celebrate, don't we? You might remember, or you might not, remember last, last week I, I quoted question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's all about God's providence. What do you understand as God's providence? About how nothing comes to us by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Well, there is a follow-up question, question 28. It says, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? In other words, okay, that's great. God is sovereign over every detail. What does it benefit us to know that? How do we apply this story? What can we take away from it? Well, here's the answer. Here's what it benefits us. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, 
and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. And isn't that what we've seen in this story? Every detail is so completely in his hand that we can be patient and thankful and confident that all of history, just like this story of Esther, is going to end happily ever after. It really, really will. Let's pray that we would believe that. Our loving Father God, we want to thank you for this encouraging end, for this picture that it is of our future. We remember the threat, Lord. We remember the reality of judgment. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus who has rescued us, who will win the day. Please would you keep us remembering these things and so keep us trusting you with patience and thankfulness and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.